unique podcast taking you behind the badge. Unbelievable stories exploring the day in the life of a first responder. 911 is made possible by Carlos Bail Bonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates, fighting for those that have been denied disability, life, long-term care, and health benefits nationwide. Now, here's your host, DeMarlin Dean. Welcome to 911. Thank you so much for joining us today for another amazing episode. And today I actually have a return guest. So if you've been following and watching all of the podcasts, you will recognize the name Michael Sugru because Michael Sugru was actually my guest in episode 19. And a lot has been going on in his life. I, I went back. Um, through the notes and realized it was about a year ago. It was December of 21 when I uh, released your episode. And here we are a year later. And I, I do remember us talking about a book that you were working on back then. And now that book has been released and I've actually bought a copy myself and read it. So we're certainly going to talk about that. But tell me what else has been going on in your world before we jump into the ship. You know, just I'm focusing on smashing the stigma of mental health among all first responders, especially law enforcement. And so now that I'm medically retired from my career in law enforcement, this is my mission. And so I'm trying to spread the word. I'm trying to share my story, let people know that they're not alone. And so most of what I do now is I travel across the country and I speak at various agencies, departments, uh, training symposiums, and, and again, just trying to get the word out. Um, I'm not unique and I'm not special. Um, the only difference is I'm willing to talk about this stuff and a lot of people aren't. Yeah. And I, and I think thanks to you and people like you, more and more people are feeling more comfortable talking about it for sure. And I actually follow you on um, some of your social media. I know LinkedIn and I think Instagram, I follow you on both of those. And you're posting, you often post things and statistics about officer suicide. Tell me a little bit about that as far as, you know, has there been a huge, you know, increase in that? What, what are you seeing in that world? Well, first, I want to say the, the numbers that we have are primarily from an organization called Blue Help. And they've done a very good job at trying to get accurate numbers. But the truth is that these numbers are really greatly underreported. And it's estimated probably two to three or even greater than that um, underreported. But what is a fact, and it's undisputed, is the number one killer of law enforcement and all first responders, for that matter, is suicide. Um, I believe last year, so the year just ended, and I believe we were about 154, 155 reported suicides. Mm -hmm. And the year before that, I think it was 149. Um, you know, if you go back to 2016, when they started tracking these numbers, we're well over 1,100 reported law enforcement suicides. And that's not counting firefighters, you know, paramedics, dispatchers, this is just law enforcement. And the ironic thing is that as law enforcement, we spend literally hundreds of hours over our career on defensive tactics, arrest and control techniques, emergency driving, um, all these things to protect us from the bad guys, quote unquote. But we don't spend much time to protect ourselves against the number one threat. And that's us. Wow. I mean, that's the most ironic thing about this whole thing is that 
we are our own worst enemy when it comes to this. If there was one thing that you felt like that you could snap your finger and it be accepted, implemented, you know, put into play, whatever you want to call it, what would that one thing be, in your opinion, that would really put a huge dent in officer suicide? I think simply getting rid of the stigma that talking about our feelings, you know, talking about our emotions or reactions to the trauma and the things that we see on a daily basis. If we could change that one simple thing and make it okay to just acknowledge the humanity, to make it okay to admit when something bothers us or something's not going right. Um, But for most of us, we have to put up this front of invincibility that nothing can penetrate us, nothing bothers us. And that we just go about our business, you know, unfazed. And, and that could be the farthest from the truth. And, and this is part of the public education that I like to do because, you know, most of the public who don't really know law enforcement firsthand, they have their own perception and for mm-hmm. good reason. But the truth is that, you know, we're humans just like everybody else. And we deal with, you know, the same problems at home on top of countless, I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents on the job. And these things affect us dearly. And even though we don't show it to the public, we don't show it on calls or on you know traffic stops or on the street. I'm telling you right now, this stuff is bothering us all. Right. And speaking of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, letting things get to you and bother you and maybe how that affects into some officers making some bad decisions. You shared briefly and in your book, you talk, uh, talk some about it too. And I will, we'll get more about, to, about the book. Cause I, I really encourage people to get your book because it is the way it's presented is extremely unique. And I really did enjoy it, but you shared a time when you were essentially betrayed, you know, you, you were really lost, uh, a part of your, a part of you, a part of what you did because of your supervisor, um, some stupid, let's just say some stupid decisions that he made that affected the entire team. Well, episode 35, unbeknownst to me, I had an interview with Mr. Norm Welch. <laughs> and at the beginning of the interview, he said, hey, before we get started, I need to, to come clean. Or he said, I need to full disclosure. Uh, you had mentioned or you had Michael Sugru on and he talked about the supervisor and, you know, told him the situation because that was me. He said, so I want to get that out beforehand and let you know if you don't want to have me on. That's fine. It's like, no, you know, you've got a story to share as well. But, yeah, that, I had no idea when I scheduled him that he was the person that you were talking about. Um, and was that the incident that caused it? And, and I'm not going to give away everything because I want you guys to, you know, my listeners to go read the book. As a matter of fact, go ahead and tell us the name of the book. Uh, The book is Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma, and it's co-authored with Dr. Shauna Springer. And that's the part that's so unique, because one chapter will be you talking about your experience and what you felt, um, how it affected you. And then the next chapter would be Dr. Springer talking talking about it from a medical standpoint, from a psychological standpoint of uh, and putting it into you know, into doctor's words, so to speak, what that was and, and how it relates to, you know, just the everyday person. And it was really, really good and really, really eye opening. Um, but that incident that caused you that team to be disband- disbanded, that was before a shooting um, that took place late in your career. Is that correct? Do I have the timelines right? You do. So um, basically that incident, I was undercover on a California State Department of Justice Uh, Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement. So basically, it's like the state version of the DEA. 
And I basically was on loan to this regional task force. It was my dream, dream job, my, I mean, dream assignment. I was literally just, I mean, living the dream. I mean, this is what I, I strove for my entire career, and I finally made it. And in this task force, uh, my supervisor, who you mentioned, Norm, he was a uh, California Department of Justice commander. And so everybody on the team were officers from different agencies. We all came together. And basically, our whole purpose was to target mid to high level drug dealers. I mean, that was our sole purpose. And eventually, um, Norm, he got himself into some trouble. And the ironic thing is that when you and I first did our interview, um, there's a lot of things that have happened since then. And namely, Norm actually reached out to me. So Norm ended up going to federal prison. He actually did several years uh, for what happened. And he reached out to me uh, with a sincere apology. And this is where I kind of want to talk about my change in perceptions and mindset, because I used to be a very black and white person. Like there was no gray area. It was kind of like, if you broke the law, that was it. You're going to jail. I don't care why. And throughout my own recovery experience and my volunteer work, you know, working with alcoholics, addicts, um, all kinds of first responders that have gotten themselves also into trouble like Norm did, mm -hmm. I see it in a different light. And I'm not excusing what Norm did because, and we go into great detail about this in the book, but what Norm did, um, you know, I used to think back then was unforgivable. But the fact of the matter is, you know, Norm, he went to prison, he did his time, and he's turned his life completely around. I mean, he literally, I believe, got his doctorate in theology. He wrote a book, and he's trying to save lives now. And so I accepted his apology. I mean, I did, and, and we follow each other. We're connected. I see the work that he's doing. And so my point is that, you know, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can come out the other side of it. It's going to take work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's going to take redemption. It's going to take a lot of things to come together. But in Norm's case, I think it happened. And I'm happy for Norm. You know, I'm glad that he's out. I'm glad that he's back with his family. And, and more importantly, he's using his struggle, kind of like I use my struggle, to help other people, to kind of bring this, these things, these topics that we don't talk about and bring them to the light. And that's what this is all about, is simply bringing it to the light. Absolutely. And he told me that. He said, now, what I did not know is that that happened after um, you and I had our initial podcast, because he told me, he said, hey, I just want to let you know, I've reached out to Michael. I've apologized. He's accepted my apology. You know, I kind of assumed that it happened even before you and I had, had talked, but it, it didn't. That is, that is super, super cool. And he does have a really neat story. So, you know, I'd encourage all of you all, if you haven't gone and listened to episode 19 featuring Michael, the first episode, and then also episode 35, and of course, every episode in between there, they're all, they all have good things in them. But it was very, very interesting to hear, you know, his perspective. And, and frankly, he's still paying physically some, some dues from the things that he did have to go through dealing with, you know, drugs and, and that type of thing. Um, so yeah, you can be redeemed, but uh, as, as, as my daughter, who's wise beyond her years, she said, dad, you know, sin is sin, you know, all there's no sin that's any greater than the other. He, she said, but however, some sin has bigger consequences than the other. So, which is very, very wise on, on her part. And, and so he certainly, there's some consequences, you know, aside from prison that he may be dealing with, but it was very, cool to hear him say that, hey, I reached out to Michael, I apologized. And and, and and the fact that he shared that before we ever hit record to give me an opportunity to say, nope, you know, I don't want to go this route. But again, I'm not one to squash anyone's story because, you know, his story is important as well. Um, so I talked about before 
how you had that betrayal earlier on in your career. And then that led to what I do want to focus on some, because after I read your book and got even more details about a shooting that you were involved in, and you gave such great perspective about what an officer goes through because the public sees an officer involved shooting. They see an officer get days off, which is mandatory in, in every department that I'm aware of, but they always think one, ah, ha ha. Yeah. You go shoot somebody, you get a vacation. And this is, you know, you're just back living the life. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, what's going on in those days that you're off, what's going on immediately after the shooting, how, the officer oftentimes is, is treated. You go into a lot of that in the book. And I'd like for you to take us back to that night. And let's talk uh, a little more in detail about that shooting and, and, and the effect that you feel like it had on you through the rest of your career. So we're going to go back to December of 2012 and to kind of paint where I was at my life at that time. Um, I was happily married, had a beautiful daughter. I just bought my dream house seven months earlier and I've been recently promoted in November uh, to patrol sergeant, and it was pretty much quicker and faster than anybody had prior to that time. And I was in an informal field training process where I rode around with some different sergeants for a couple of weeks. And now we're into December, and I'm on my own. So I'm running a patrol team. I'm working the graveyard shift. Um, this particular shift started the night after Christmas, so December 26th. And I went into work at 9.30, and we were supposed to get off at 7.30. Um, shift started out real quiet. We had an overlapping team on the swing shift, but they ended up going home, I believe it was like 1 or 1.30 in the morning. And at that point, I was the only supervisor on for the entire city. And I had minimum staffing. I had one dispatcher, and I had four other police officers on the street. And that was it for the entire city. Um, and typically, that's not a problem because typically, like I said, it's very quiet, it's very uneventful. In fact, for several hours, there was nothing going on for that shift. I mean, it was real quiet. A little bit after 3 a.m., I was approving reports in my car, you know, counting down the clock to go home. And all of a sudden, our dispatcher got on the radio, and her voice was extremely frantic like I hadn't heard before. And she puts out the address on Creekside Drive and says that there is a female barricaded inside a condo or apartment and that there is a man with a knife. And so at that point, we all answer up on the radio and we start driving to this location as fast as we can. There's no cars on the street. I'm blown through all the traffic lights. Mm -hmm. And about halfway there, the dispatcher gets on the air again and says now that the boyfriend and girlfriend are barricaded inside a bedroom. And I was wow. confused. So, so I asked for clarification. I said, you know, is the, the boyfriend the one with a knife or is there actually a third subject with a knife? And she quickly clarified that, no, there is a third subject armed with a knife. And so at this point, I mean, this is all happening at the same time as I'm driving, but these thoughts are just going through my head. Of, you know, what am I going to encounter and this scene and somebody with a knife trying to kill people? And I literally get to the scene in just a matter of a couple minutes. As I start to get out of my car, two things happen. The first thing is that the, the dispatcher now gets on the air and she's really screaming. And she says, units, units, there's a struggle. And then she says she lost all communication inside the condominium. So that 911 call with that female victim ended up dropping and we had no more communication inside this condominium. And at that same time, as I'm getting out of my car, I can hear blood curling screams of a female coming from the distance. And thank God, one of my officers, a female officer pulled up right behind me. And we immediately started running towards the sounds of the screams. We didn't know where this, we knew where the complex was, but we didn't know where this unit was. Mm -hmm. Eventually we had to crawl 
underneath an outside stairwell. Eventually, we got into this open courtyard, and there was two-story attached condominiums basically surrounding us on all sides. We ended up getting to the unit, and these blood-curling screams just stopped. And then it goes to just eerily silence. I mean, I don't see anybody outside. We don't hear any other noises. And I know I've got three other patrol officers that are on their way. And so now it's just myself and this one officer. And we're announcing ourselves. Our guns are out. I try kicking open the door. It doesn't work. Uh, The officer motions to a huge window, a louvered window the size of a door. And it had been completely shattered inside the condominium. And so, again, we announce ourselves, you know, please come out, show us your hands, nothing, no sounds, no movement. And we look at each other and we go in. The officer goes in. I go in right behind her. That takes us to this kitchen area. And there's like a cutout where I can see a a family room, like kind of living room area. And we don't see anybody. We exit the kitchen. She goes right, which takes her to the bottom of a staircase or stairwell. I go left and I clear those two rooms. I don't find anybody. I don't find any signs of a disturbance. The only thing that was out of the order was the kitchen with all that glass that had been broken into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So now that first officer and I are shoulder to shoulder. We're both standing at the base of the stairwell with our guns pointed up. My, She's to my right and to her right is a solid wall. We can see there's an opening to the left up top, but we don't know if it goes to a bedroom, a hallway, and we don't see anything. So again, guns are out, announcing ourselves. In a matter of seconds – a male subject partially comes out and he's sweating profusely. His eyes are just wide open, just literally staring straight through us as if we're not there. And, and while this is happening, we're now yelling with our guns, you know, show us your hands, show us your hands. And we can't see the right side of his body. We can only see the left side of his body. Mm-hmm. Sometime during this, two more officers enter the condominium. I yell for one of them to get the taser. The male officer says, I've got the taser. He positions right behind myself and that first officer. The second female officer that arrives goes perpendicular to the stairwell. Moments later, the male comes fully out, and my partner yells, he's got a knife, he's got a knife. And sure enough, in his right hand clenched, he had a full-size butcher knife or chef's knife. Wow. And now we're yelling, you know, guns out, drop the knife, drop the knife. And again, no reaction. I mean, I don't remember any facial expression. I don't remember eyes blinking. I don't remember body movement. I mean, literally, it was like a zombie is the best way to describe it. He then takes the knife up over his head in the stabbing position and starts coming down the stairs towards us. Uh, we later find out that basically three of us fired our firearms. The male fired his taser. Uh, that Now the suspect is at the bottom of the stairs. The two female officers retreated to the family room, living room area, and the male officer had the taser dropped it and pulled out his firearm. And now, literally, we're just a few feet from the suspect who's on the ground still clenching this knife. And I don't see any injuries. I don't see any blood. Literally, I just see that knife in his right hand. And so now our guns are at him, and we're saying, drop the knife, drop the knife. And he starts coming back up with this knife. The other officer and I, we shoot our weapons. And there's no nice way to say it, but he, he was killed instantly. I mean, his wounds were absolutely devastating. I mean, one of his eyes was completely gone. I mean, literally, this was just a few feet right in front of me. I mean, literally mm-hmm. right there. And he was between us and the couple upstairs. And we didn't know if they were dead, bleeding out, or dying. We checked the vitals of the suspect. There were none. Medical was already staging, so I had the dispatch send in medical The officers went upstairs to check on the couple. And thank God we got there when we did because it turns out 
that suspect was stabbing through the bedroom door with his butcher knife, and that couple was physically barricading themselves against the door trying to prevent him from coming inside that room. And the door was coming off the hinges. I mean, I know for a fact, no doubt, that had we not gotten there when we did, they would be dead. They would not be alive today, no doubt. Right, and that was later, you you guys were cleared. But what I wanna focus on a little bit is one, what did you think happened when you were there as far as um, weapons being discharged, who did what, versus what actually happened? And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm doing this for a reason, and you probably know why, but let me just start there. What did you think happened? And then later on, once everything, everyone was interviewed, what actually did happen? So, and that's a great question. And so the first thing that happened was we were all, once we got relieved at the scene, we were all separated. So we were sequestered. We weren't allowed to talk to each other. We weren't allowed to discuss the incident. And we were all interviewed within a few hours. And we had our attorneys there. We were interviewed by the district attorney's office um, who had investigators. We also had internal investigators. And during that initial interview, you know, I gave my statement. And my statement initially was, is that that female officer that first showed up with me, the one that ran towards the condominium, we first went inside, who was basically shoulder to shoulder with me. I thought she was involved in both volleys of shots. I didn't realize that it was actually another male officer, the one that had the taser, who was involved in the second round of shots. So in that first round of shots, three of us were involved. In the second round of shots, it was just two of us. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that when these incidents happen, you know, there's a lot of physical changes that happen. You know, fight or flight, adrenaline starts pumping in. Um, Oftentimes people report like super hearing or, or tunnel vision or supervision. And at that time, I was so focused on that threat, on that butcher knife, that I don't even remember hearing the gunshots. I mean, literally, you know, we're right next to each other and, and I don't have any ear protection. I don't have any earmuffs. And there is a firearm being discharged literally right by my head, right by my ears. But I'm so focused on that threat that that's what I'm, I'm, I'm focused on. I'm not even aware of what everybody else is doing. And what's very interesting is that a week after that initial interview, We got interviewed again by our internal affairs division, and we still had a chance to talk to each other because we were ordered not to talk to each other or anybody else about this incident. And so we gave a second interview, and after that, we had a critical incident debrief. That was where we all learned what each other did as far as where they were standing, when they came in, what they saw, what they did, because you know we were so focused on our own actions, it's very, very difficult to know what somebody else is doing, even if they're right next to you. And right. that's, I think that's a common misconception by the public that, you know, they think that being involved in this type of incident, that we're all fully aware of what everyone around us is doing. And right. that could be farthest from the truth. The reality is, is that when you're, you know, fight or flight, and literally you're fighting for your life, I mean, you're fighting for survival, and you're focused on that threat. And you're either focused on, fighting and neutralizing that threat or you're focused on flight running away from that threat and that's what happens right and the reason i ask that is that's so important i mean again i encourage everyone to read read the book because you know you get a better even a better perspective of it but when we watch television you know you see the cop shows which is a bunch of bs but then when you see the news when you see officers involved shooting 
you hear in court later on, maybe, well, this officer changed their testimony or this officer said this and they lied because they're trying to really do everything they can to discredit that officer. The truth of the matter is you do tell what you think is the truth based on what you experienced that night, just as you did. But because of all the things that that, that happened, that, that your body goes through in a situation that stressful, you really aren't always aware, which is also why you are told you need to have an attorney because your attorney's job is to hopefully protect you from saying things that you shouldn't or making a mistake. It's not to cover anything up. It's not to you know stop you from lying, but you can inadvertently say things that that especially an attorney knows that the opposing counsel is going to take and try to twist that. And that happened to you. You guys were dragged through the mud. I mean, it, it, it from what you described and what was later, <clears throat> excuse me, shown to be the truth, there was no question that this was a good shoot. But you being a police officer, even knowing that it was a good shoot, you still had to see what was being said about you in the news, um, things that were totally untrue. And you can't do anything to defend or protect yourself. Um, and I want you to take me through some of those things that you had to experience in going through and what that made you feel to read or hear some of these things in the news that you knew absolutely were not true. You know, like you mentioned, we were cleared, I mean, pretty quickly by both the district attorney's office and our own internal investigators. And the fact of the matter is we had two witnesses. We had two victims whose lives we saved. I mean, it, there, there was no question about that. And, you know, when this first got put out to the media, and this is before body cameras, so my agency at that time, we didn't have body cameras. Um, but I remember that news reporters were asking police administrators about the incident. And at that time, all they would say is that he was armed. They didn't say what he was armed with. And honestly, that left a question out to the public of, well, why aren't they saying this? Are they trying to cover something up? Are they trying to hide it? And then people start to assume things or, you know, misperceive things. And what needs to happen is we need to be very out in front in the open about these incidents and about what happens, mm -hmm. but also realize that it takes time to investigate them. It takes time to reconstruct scenes and, and like to figure out whose bullet went where. And, and that process took months and months and months. I mean, even though I was involved in a shooting, I didn't know if I even ever shot the guy until, I mean, it was like eight, nine, 10 months after the incident. And, you know, there, you see TV, you're like, no, you're in an incident. You find out instantly. And, and, and that's not the case. So, you know, there's a lot of things that people assume, but, but realize that when a life is taken, whether it's, you know, a homicide that police are investigating or it's an officer involved shooting, they are going to be investigated to the absolute fullest because, a life is the most precious thing out there, and no police officer ever wants to take a human life. And the facts are that most police officers never have to. Right. I mean, less than 1% of police officers are ever involved in a fatal shooting. But when you watch the news, you think it happens all the time, and it right. doesn't. It's, it's extremely rare. And so, you know, we got sued immediately by the family of, of the man that tried to kill us. And there's all these wild stories that went out there by their attorneys saying that he wasn't armed, that he was no threat to us, you know, that basically we panicked and, and shot. And it was just, I mean, absolutely ridiculous. And right. I went through this for almost four years. I ended up in trial in San Francisco 
you know, in federal court, one of the worst places you can imagine to be in court because, you know, the family wanted answers. And right. so, and in the, in the end, we prevailed. I mean, we won the trial. And the judge actually said that had it not been for our actions that night, more lives would have been lost. You right. know, but what we haven't talked about is that this incident has affected me since the day it happened. And it will affect me for the rest of my life. I mean, rest of my life. Right. And that's what people don't realize is that, you know, you don't just get in the shooting and then go on about your business and like nothing ever happened. And in my case, it led to a whole series of events in a downward spiral of my life. I mean, literally ending my marriage, my health started to fail. I mean, it got to the point where I didn't want to be here anymore. I literally want to die in the line of duty. And that's the facts of this is that. I never wanted that to happen, but I had no choice. It was either my life, my officer's life, the couple upstairs, or it was his life. And that's the fact of it. And even though it was a good shooting, even though we were cleared by investigators and in a court of law, that doesn't change the fact that this will stay with me the rest of my life. Right. I often say when I um, when this comes up on my show that many officers don't survive this, meaning, you know, they're involved in a shooting where they have to take someone's life. Their career usually does end or often end shortly thereafter because they cannot cope with that with that weight. I mean, it is a huge burden. And, you know, so much of our society just makes everything so frivolous. I mean, you know, when you watch the TV shows, you know, these guys are, <clears throat> excuse me, they, they go out here and they light up and they, they kill a house full of people and they're back on the job the next day and nothing's, you know, is all good. Nobody, uh, you know, no, no stress to them. And, and people think that it's really like that. And it's not, uh, or the fact that, you know, even though it was a justified shoot, you guys were in the right, you guys saved lives. You still were dragged through the mud from the attorneys for the other family because, you know, they wanted what they felt like was justice. And, you know, frankly, I, I don't know them or anything about them, but obviously they're hurting. They love that person. You know, they don't see the person as that person was in that state trying to kill you. That was their son, brother, you know, father, whatever. Um, and they're, they're hurting too. And so, so sometimes that that pain is misdirected, obviously, at the officers that were there. It wasn't your fault. You know, he 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 put everything in motion to cause you guys to do what you guys ultimately had to do. It wasn't your choice. Um, but a lot of times that gets lost in everything. And, and it's unfortunate. But again, that's why I wanted to have you back on and talk about those things, because it's so important. And if if one person walks away from the show with a better understanding, what's what it's really like to be in an officer involved shooting, then good. You know, it, it's been worth it. It's been worth it. Um, so is, is that part of the reason that you you medically retired? Was it goes back probably to the to the shooting and, and everything that transpired or transpired after that because of, you know, the stress or feelings or whatever the emotional um, trauma that you were dealing with because of that? So, yes and no. So, you know, up until that point, I had served in the Air Force for six and a half years um, when the shooting happened. I had about eight years on and I had already experienced a lot of trauma on the job. You know, a lot of suicides, homicides, fatal car accidents, incidents where I actually almost shot other people, um, you know, suicides where I showed up and the gun is still smoking. Those types of things that I never addressed. I never processed. I never acknowledged the humanity of it. And so 
to kind of visually describe it is that I had a jar that started out pretty empty when I started my career, but it kept filling up as I was exposed to these traumatic incidents. Mm -hmm. And for me, that shooting was kind of like a tip tipping point. And, but I worked for several years after that shooting. And so it wasn't the shooting itself. Um, it was, you know, a series of events, but on top of that, it was admin administrative betrayal or institutional betrayal, which I talk about in great depths in my book. And, you know, the facts are that as cops, we eat our own better than anybody else. And I faced a lot of incidents, um, occasions where I needed my blue family. I needed my law enforcement family and certain people in positions of power turn their back on me when I need them most. Mm -hmm. And that really led to my eventual retirement, which was in 2018 for post-traumatic stress. Um, and that's another thing that isn't often talked about. So we don't talk about the humanity of the job. We don't talk about the suicide numbers, um, but we also don't talk about the institutional betrayal. And, and I really go in deep about that in our new book. And I found you know, I get messages almost on a daily basis from people all over the world. I mean, literally from the UK, Germany, Canada, the United States, you name it. And there's a common theme. And mm -hmm. people say, me too, me too. And when they're saying that, it's because they've experienced the same or similar things. And oftentimes, it's not the traumatic incident that pushes people over the edge. It's how they're treated and the abandonment by their family, what they thought was their family when they need them most. And right. that's the reality of it is that, you know, oftentimes it's not that traumatic incident. It's the fallout after that incident that right. causes people to want to take their own lives or to retire or get to the point where they just say, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't, I can't put myself out there and be exposed to just trauma after trauma after trauma. I can't do it anymore. I've had enough. You right. know, my jar is, is overflowing and I'm done. Yeah. That, <clears throat> excuse me, that thin blue line, so to speak, is a tricky thing. Um, because really what it is, is when you guys are out there on the call and patrolling together and, you know, typically there's always, there's always the uh, outliers that you don't want backing you up, but typically you have each other's back. That's, that's really what it's talking about. You're out there, you're in the trenches together. You have each other's back. Think of it as, as someone that's in war the military you have each other's back but then there's also there's always that that other side the uh, the administration and it's like where do these guys come from i thought you guys were officers at one point and it seems like when they become administration oftentimes it, it, they just lose all common sense they forget everything about being on the street and you do have a lot uh, uh, oftentimes you hear officers talk about betrayal um you know i said when i was on the police department you expect a certain amount of you know, push back from the public um, because they don't get it. They don't understand. But it's extremely disheartening when when it is your fellow, your peers, your administration that is is essentially hanging you out to dry in, in situations where you are doing the right thing. You're doing what you're trained. Uh, but maybe it doesn't look good. You know, maybe the wrong person or the right person, so to speak, complained. And then they're like they're washing their hands. And, and you know, you're getting 28 days off without pay for something that you really shouldn't have. Um, and that's hard to deal with. It's hard. That That's one of the reasons that I left at such a 
early part of my career. It didn't happen to me necessarily, but I watched officers around me that did exactly what they were trained to do. That did exactly what I feel like I would have done in that situation. They got suspended for 28 days or, or worse yet fired. I'm like, wait, wait, hold on a minute. I can't, you can't expect me to go out here and, and do my job effectively. If I'm watching people that are doing it right and they're getting suspended because again, somebody complained or it didn't, didn't look good. And of course this was way before cameras as well, but that's a tough, tough place to be where you feel like you're getting it from both ends. And I think that's even more so now, much more so than it was, you know, in 91, 92, 93, when I was on. I couldn't agree with you more. And in my case, the ironic thing is that, you know, I suffered in silence for four years, um, but there was a very tragic incident, which I go into detail about in my book, but my best friend tried to take his own life when I was on duty. And that incident was my wake-up call. And so finally, a month after that is when I got the strength and courage to ask for help. And all I wanted to do was to get better and to go back to work because being a police officer was my dream since being a child. I mean, this mm-hmm. was a calling for me. It was my purpose. And I was off work, you know, doing everything I could from going to retreats for first responders to meetings, seeing a therapist, a psychiatrist, trying medication. I mean, literally, and my plan was to go back to work. But when you have an administration that looks at you as somebody that has the plague and they don't want anything to do with you and they want you to just retire and go away, you know, what kind of message are you sending to the other people who are struggling in silence and need help, but they won't ask for it because they've seen how other people got treated when they did ask for it. Right. And and that's, that's the thing is that's costing lives. Mm -hmm. You know, when you set one person as an example and say, look, if you ask for help, you're going to have to retire. You're going to have to leave law enforcement. No, that's not the case. Post-traumatic stress injury, you can get better. You can go back to work. It's not a career ender, you know, but the facts are that you have to understand it. You have to be patient. You have to provide the resources and the tools that people need. And everyone's watching. Everyone else in the department is going to look and see how that person's being treated. And like I said, if they see that, you know what, they're being outcasted and nobody wants to do anything to do with them, there's no way they're ever going to ask for help. And that's going to cost lives. And that's the real issue. And that's what we need to change. Yeah, I won't give away any secrets. But when I when I read that chapter uh, in your book um, about you doing everything that you needed to do to get back to work, when I read the conclusion, what happened, it broke my heart. So I'm telling you, you know, we, we, we've gone in depth talking about the shooting, which is just really one one chapter in the book. But there's so much in your book that really opens people's eyes. And the, the cool thing about this book is it doesn't matter if you're a first responder, law enforcement or not. It's extremely helpful for anyone, um, you know, especially if you. Um, you know, do anything that's dealing with with trauma or because it doesn't have to be, again, a first responder or if you're married to a first responder of any sort or somebody that may be dealing with these things. It's an excellent book for that um, as well to help understand, because as the spouses, you know, sometimes we don't we don't understand all these things that are going on and we don't know how to help. Um, so, you know, again, I want you to take, you know, whatever time that you need to, again, to tell us where we can get the book, because, hey, I've been seeing all these, um, all your reviews and everything, and you're knocking it out of the park. And of course, just, just so you know, I gave you a five-star review and I meant it. It was, I mean, it was really good. I was reading the book while I was on vacation, uh, I think this past summer, 
summer or um in the fall. I believe it's summer. Um, and it was it was great. But yes, let everyone know how to get the book. So the book it's only on Amazon. It's available in paperback, hardcover, or on Kindle. Um, it came out at the end of April 2022, but it was actually a bestseller for over 20 weeks. And actually, as of today, I think it has over 316 reviews, like you said, and you're one of them. And mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that. But but here's the deal. And if anybody's you know not sure, I encourage you go on Amazon and read some of these reviews because I'm talking heartfelt, multiple paragraph reviews from family members of first responders, parents of first responders you know, children of first responders, but also just people on the street. And and here's the beautiful thing about this book is that when Doc Springer and I set out to write this book, our our main purpose was to save lives. It was Mm -hmm. to address the suicide epidemic among all first responders, among military members. But the coolest thing that happened from this book is that it's opened up so many people's eyes and hearts to who first responders really are. And this book is actually working to improve community relations because mm-hmm. we as law enforcement, we've done a horrible job on educating the public and letting them in because right. we need the public to know who we are and to know how these things affect us. And, and this book is breaking barriers as we speak. I mean, it's saving lives. Most importantly, it's saving relationships, marriages, but it's breaking barriers and it's bringing people together. And that's what we need. We need more of that today. It is. Um, it, it is very much so needed in our society today. Um, the book was a great read. It was an easy read. Tell us the name of it again. want to make sure everybody it's has called, it. Absolutely. It's called Relentless Courage, mm-hmm. Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. And my co-author is Dr. Shauna Springer. Phenomenal, phenomenal, culturally competent clinician. She's actually a psychologist who's worked with combat veterans and first responders most her career. And she is a gifted, gifted writer. I'm not, but she made this whole project possible. And and I'm telling you right now, you already said it, but there is nothing like this out there. This book is very unique, the format of it. It's almost like you're getting two books in one. Mm-hmm. You're getting the firsthand account, a gritty, I mean, no holds barred, the good, the bad, the ugly from a street cop, but then you're getting the analysis, the explanation, the breakdown from a culturally competent doctor, somebody who gets it, who understands it, but also explains it in such an easy way that anybody will truly get it. They will truly see the human behind the badge and behind the uniform. Absolutely. Relentless Courage. It's a great book. And also, I just want to make sure I take a minute to thank our sponsor because, you know, you may find yourself dealing with, with, you know, PTSD, PTSI, as some people call it, post-traumatic stress injury, um, or some other type of thing that may cause permanent disability in you and you can't do your job anymore. If you have that situation and you've been paying for disability insurance and you find yourself that you can't, you can no longer perform your job because of an injury that you've had, whether it's like this or something else, a physical injury, then you need to call my friend Eric Buchanan at Eric Buchanan and Associates. Um, His number is 877-634-2506. Or you can reach him, find him online at BuchananDisability.com. You know, this dude is going to go to bat for you. He's going to work really hard to make sure you get the benefits that you've been paying for and that you deserve. Again, Eric Buchanan and Associates. And if you want 
Michael Sugru, because now you're out on speaking circuits, and I'm assuming that you know you wouldn't be, you you would you would accept an invitation to come speak to a group of first responders or otherwise. If people wanted to reach out to you, um, how could they find you? To shoot your email, or what would you like for them to do if they want to invite you to come speak? So I'm all over the place. I'm on LinkedIn. I check it every single day. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Literally, you can send me a message on any of those platforms. I check them every single day. And we'll have a conversation and we'll work out the details. And I'd love to come out and speak to you. Sounds good. And I'll put all those links in the show notes as well. So you can just go to the podcast show notes and look in there and you can click right on them and go to one of his uh, social media platforms and connect with Michael Suguru there. And man, I just want to thank you again for taking the time out and sharing your story. It is an amazing story. Relentless Relentless Courage is an amazing book. Thank you so much for writing it and putting it out there. Um, I certainly did um, learn a lot from it. And again, this is from somebody that was on the inside, but it opened my eyes to so many things that I think the general public would do well to, to listen and understand. And to all my listeners, thank you so much for uh, for watching and supporting the podcast and make sure that you, if you haven't already, that you subscribe and that you like and that you share. Um, that helps me more than anything, sharing it with others, giving me a five-star review on the Apple podcast. And um, if you have any suggestions of someone that you'd like for me to have on the show, um, give me a shout. You can shoot me an email at 911.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for your support. And until next time, have a blessed day. Thanks for listening to 9 what We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have comments or suggestions, please email us at 9-1-what.podcast at gmail.com. And thanks to Carlos Bailbonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates for making this episode possible.